0: On today's podcast, I would very much like to welcome a long-term supporter of Brick, but more importantly, one of the key drivers of how the Think Brick Awards look today, and a great mentor and friend, Neil Durback. Welcome to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Hi, Liz. So, Neil, can we just talk a little bit about where you grew up in the world and maybe what your childhood was like?
1: Well, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. My childhood was really ordinary, I came from a sort of middle-class background, I lived in a middle-class street with middle-class neighbours, and there was nothing sort of exceptional except the whole of South Africa was pretty exceptional. I think the political situation kind of overshadowed everything, because I grew up in the 60s and revolution was in the air. South Africa at that time was politically so charged that you had to take a position on all sorts of things. And unfortunately, I think I took a position on authority. So I sort of had a real problem with authority because the state always was imposing all the time on what you should read. There was no TV, so you didn't know what was really going on, what films you could see, and actually what music you could listen to. And so everything they told us that was really bad were the only things I was really interested in and actually became kind of contemptuous of authority for that reason, I think. And... Maybe that didn't serve us that well, but it did lead us to always be critical of what we were doing and what was going on. And I think in a way that sort of carried over into architecture in the sense that I think we were always incredibly self-critical because of that. And maybe that sort of anxiety drove a lot of our work initially.
0: In terms of as a nation or just as a person? a
1: person, I think it was quite an anxious nation anyway because it was kind of this weird sort of paranoid, secretive thing. And actually, we were really cut off from the world. Yes. And you never really knew what to think about anything because the state was so powerful. And because we were cut off, we couldn't even travel. You know, just travelling was a real problem.
0: And where did you find, like in that time, did you find places where... There was that freedom or not? or The only,
1: the only place was really <laughs> the architectural library because there were books. And so all our knowledge really came from books and reading and kind of gossip that you heard about people had met so and so been to that building. And I think because all our information was from books, our curiosity about what was going on was incredibly intense mm. because of that, because you were so detached from the real world. And I think that's something that really benefited our work long term, was you felt that the only way to kind of understand what you were doing was through this deep knowledge of it. And we're very lucky because we didn't have the internet or TV. And as I said, because travel was so difficult. So you really had to study plans quite intensely to sort of figure out what was good about it and what were people seeing in that work.
0: And what sort of role did your parents play in this? Like, were they also feeling that sort of rebellion against authority? My,
1: My mother particularly was quite politically involved and my sister went on to be very politically involved and in the end actually fled South Africa because she was involved in quite a huge law case where I think 25 people had been sentenced to death for a political act. And so we grew up in a political environment But it was inescapable, you know. And I think, in a way, your relationship to Africa was quite curious then. Because at that time, I don't know if you remember, but critical regionalism was a sort of a big thing where people were starting to try and understand their place Mm. in the world. And so it was quite exciting to think about Africa as a place. And the culture of Africa and the built culture of Africa was something that actually started to merge just as we were finishing university. It was a really interesting moment for all of us, I think.
0: And so just thinking back to that period in your life and what drove you to architecture in that time? Did you know or to be honest, nothing.
1: Okay. It was a kind of I'll tell you a really cute story. And that is when I left school I really all I wanted to do was be Bob Dylan. And my parents said, look, why don't you do medicine first? And then you can be Bob Dylan. And so I went to register at the university and actually the shortest queue was architecture. And that's how I ended up studying architecture. And so I didn't really, I was never driven to be an architect. And in a way it was just kind of luck that I ended up studying it.
0: And when you were studying it, did you, were there particular parts of it that you were more excited about or that you were more drawn to?
1: You know, I think just being in a creative environment was suddenly something that you just all, because school was really rigid and kind of oppressive and suddenly we're in the scene where you could just think loosely and freely about anything and actually you could compete with other people at the level of ideas and that was really exciting, I thought.
0: And so you finish university and then what happens?
1: Then I ran away from South Africa, because in South Africa, you had to go to the army unless you were studying. And so everybody just kept trying to study. And I went to Berkeley to do a master's. Met some amazing people then. Actually, looking back now, those were really such incredibly formative times. When I was young, there were people like Steve Hull, Stanley Sider, Lars LaRoupe. Mark Mac, Andrew Beatty, who I sort of worked with a little bit, and it was just this incredible moment in America. But I didn't enjoy studying. I felt that I'd sort of studied enough. I mean, it was kind of (laughs) weirdly arrogant, but I just, I wanted to work. I wanted to, I really wanted to build, and the idea of studying was as a way of staying out of South Africa was kind of, it felt really odd and Mm -hmm. difficult. And... That's when I read this article, and this, this is a true story, that in the Rolling Stone about the film industry in Australia, and it said how amazing it was, and I don't know if you remember, but in the very early 80s, Australia was doing unbelievable work, like really knockout sort of work. And it seemed a place where a small place was just producing this incredibly exciting free work, you know, like it was radical and it sort of almost took on the big people mm. in a weird way. It was almost that anti-authority mm. thing that was so appealing that out of nowhere all these people like Mad Max and yes. Rick and Morant and The Last Wave and all those things were being made. And Rolling Stone said, "In Australia is like this really cool, crazy kind of place. And it was then that we sort of thought, well, maybe that's the place that you could really do architecture. In a similar spirit, you know, of this incredible freedom to explore.
0: And this is when you're still in the States? Yeah. And who, when you say we, who are you? I was called?
1: there with, I was studying at Berkeley and then a friend Anne Suskind and Harry Levine came over right. and I was waiting for my girlfriend to come over. And I think we would all got kind of sick of, of America. It felt very stitched up in, and impenetrable. Right. And and Australia just seemed like the total opposite. And there was this picture of John Andrews in his short standing on a boat ramp in Pittwater. And it was like, I think we should just try. us, you know, What an amazing place. How <laughs> you can you know, go to work by boat and, and just do these incredibly experimental things at every level. And that's when we sort of applied. And at that stage, for some reason, in 82, Australia was looking for architects. I'd actually been here as an exchange student in 72 for a year, but I'd lived in Perth. Oh, okay. You understand. Well, I married someone <laughs> from Perth, so. And yes. Perth back then wasn't that exciting. But w- I'd come over to see a friend of mine, David Gonski, mm-hmm. and his mother, Helene, took me to see the opera house on a ferry, and I thought, it's just the most like crazy thing I've ever seen. And... I loved, and, and Sydney was so amazing. And so I'd actually been here before. Okay. But then we said, okay, let's go to Sydney. Right. And this was in the late 80s, in the mid-80s. And and but you're still,
0: you, you're still in the States and have you got no intention of going back to South Africa at this point?
1: No, I think we just figured it was, you know, I think once you'd left, you just realised there were so many other things and places and experiences. And there was this incredible freedom to, to look at and do things. And so we just kept moving, I guess. Okay. And actually I've never really been back to South Africa.
0: Oh wow. So you come to Sydney mm-hmm. and you what happens next?
1: Well, we had I had to get a job. So the first job was with Anchor Mortlock and Woolley. But at that time there was a lot of competitions happening. And it always reminded me of being at university doing competitions. Architectural competitions, yeah. 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 And we entered a few competitions and we'd been lucky. And then we entered the competition for Tusculum, the Institute of Architects Headquarters, and won that. And, you know, it was this unbelievable feeling of, it's indescribable that winning that competition, that sort of never happened again. But in, you know when people say you walk on cloud nine, I just, it was this really weird feeling, like we'd just done something almost inconceivable. And then it, we teamed up with AJC to to build it, and I'd never built really anything. And Harry had worked at Sidler, so he was much more equipped to do it. But it was like this incredible experience, you know, building Tusculum.
0: And did you feel like at that time, given your hopes and dreams for what you could do in Australia, that that they were coming true?
1: You know, it just seemed that you stumbled from one amazing thing into another. I mean, you sort of saw that it was complicated as yep. well. But there was this kind of innocence about the scene as well. you know. And so you thought, oh, well, that's how it is. Mm. But suddenly these opportunities happened and you couldn't have expected more.
0: And how did you end up teaching?
1: At that stage, everybody that was interested in thinking about architecture, I guess, was teaching. There was this really beautiful environment at Sydney Uni where you would just felt part of this club of really interesting people all trying out things with students. And it was also very sort of incredibly loose. And there was this, this incredible freedom to explore. And there was a, an amazing culture, the university culture then. And I think it's changed a lot.
0: Yes. And so just tell us a little bit about meeting Camilla and you obviously decided you were out on your own at this stage. Is that we, correct? Well, you were
1: working and teaching. You could yes. sort of almost support yourself a little bit through teaching. Yes. And, yeah, I think Camilla was – There was this really interesting group of students and actually you sort of felt you'd learnt as much from them as I guess that they'd learned from you. And Camilla was this, this absolute standard student and really – surprising in her sort of observations on things and the way that she made things was really refreshing. We got the commission to do a really tiny house in Darling Point and I was just sort of pottering around in Ken Ken Meyer's office because Ken had sort of taken pity and said, look, you can just set up in my office. (laughs) And I said to Camilla when she graduated, well, do you want to just come and hang out and we can design a few handrails? And, And it was kind of the weird, looking back it seemed... Like, I don't know how anybody survived really because it was so, it was just kind of random what happened. And she sort of said, sure. And then she brought in a job in in Bondi and we worked together from then on.
0: After all this time, has it been a very natural, complementary relationship? How do you think you You work?
1: You know, it's probably the longest relationship I've had, is it? Besides, you know, like family. Mm. And I think anybody that's been together for that long, there's this incredible comfort and irritation and mm. openness, which mm. is the kind of the most important thing, is that if she thinks an idea is really bad, she'll say, I think that's a really shit idea. Mm. And I can do that. And neither of us gets that upset because then we can laugh about something else. And it's actually, sometimes I think it's an incredible achievement just to have a a working relationship because you're with somebody under the weirdest circumstances, mm. the most intense, sometimes the most awful, grueling experiences. And still be together, I think it's like and with Dave. Mm. Yes. You know, and I think the three of us together, it's been an incredible pleasure just going to work every day and just hanging with them because and with the rest of the team. But in a funny way, it's just a way of hanging out, spending time in the best possible way.
0: When you think back to those early days, is there a project that sort of really defined where you were going?
1: The Holman House was this weird intersection of innocence and experience, this moment where you, you didn't know that much, but you knew enough. That intersection of those two sensibilities meant that you weren't sort of worried, you could, you could take a risk without understanding the implications, but you could also you also knew enough about architecture that you knew how to push things. So it was this weird moment of not knowing and knowing. And the clients were in a similar situation, I think. You know, they took this risk, but they didn't really know where it was gonna go, and so I think that was something that, I remember taking Nick Merkitt there, and you're never really sure what, it, what it's like, the work. I mean, I think we're always riddled with doubt. Mm-hmm. I remember Nick saying that he thought this was a really important project, and I've never, for, for some reason, I'd never forgotten that because that was the first time that Nick, who I sort of loved and respected enormously, said something beyond the sort of chit chat about. It. And he was genuinely moved by it, and I think that's when we also started to think it was something. So it almost needed somebody else to say it to us.
0: It's always the way, isn't it? Maybe. (laughs) And just in terms of understanding your networks and all of the support that we've had from a lot of the architects in your network, you, you often, a lot of architects that we work with now came and worked for you and, and you talked a little bit earlier about teaching and, and how things have changed. It seemed that you had a lot of people at the start of their career come and work for you. What did you look for or find in those young architects at the time?
1: I think in the end you looked for somebody who was serious about the game of architecture because it is kind of a serious play, but it's so you don't want it to be too heavy. Mm-hmm. And you didn't want it to be so light that it was kind of meaningless either. So it was, when you think back, people like Nick or Dave Ostinger and a whole lot of people, they kind of understood the serious play of architecture. And that their insights or their capacity to be curious about all of those things was incredibly generative. Mm.
0: And you, you did touch on that you think architecture students have changed or there isn't the same atmosphere as there once was. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: The world changed so much in the 80s. Mm. I think neoliberalism changed everything. I think survival of the fittest and just the, the sort of impetus to, to kind of get work and survive kind of altered that sort of free-floating curiosity that we always imagined was the the essence of being at university. Mm. You know. And so suddenly getting a job was much more important than finding out why did Core put that column there and not there. Mm. And you know, I think that's just the culture we sort of live in now. Everything changed so crucially after the 80s that I think that kind of looseness and experimentation was almost frowned on. And actually seemed to be a bit like, well, why would you buy that? And we just need to get work and learn how to put one brick on top of another. (laughs) It's a process.
0: Yeah. What, Just for yourself, what drives you in design? What are you looking to achieve personally in design?
1: We sort of are driven by this mixture of anxiety and play because you're anxious never to kind of keep doing the same thing. Yep. (laughs) Or <laughs> not to do what everybody else is doing. So the sort of herd mentality is something that's more than probably Camilla and Dave. are much more suspicious of it. Like mm-hmm. if everybody's doing curvy yes, then I'll think, mm, hang on, okay, we're just going to do the opposite. And if everybody's doing sort of bits of popcorn, we'll think, well, what's the best box you can do? Yes. And… So actually, that's kind of fascinating to me because you kind of in this constant reactive, like, wow, that's what's going on. So, what's that? And how do you almost ride that wave but not be overwhelmed by it? Or how do you just? And I think architecture for me is—it's always been an incredibly pleasurable way of seeing the world, Mm. and it's an amazing lens to see what people are like and what cities are like. What world's like actually. Like Australia's this amazing way of seeing all of that, I think. And because of that, it's never boring or deadening and it's endlessly opening up.
0: And with your own creative process, where do you find most of your inspiration or where are you best in those environments coming up with those different ideas?
1: I do enjoy swimming because I think it's a way of just – being in a totally different environment, and just because it, it's kind of a meditation, of course, mm. but it also allows you to think about. A lot of people, a lot of architects, always use nature as a means to be inspired. A lot of people say, "Oh, you know, just so inspired by nature and by trees and leaves," and, and I think, yeah, that's cool, but. I think we're really inspired by water because the nature of water is much more fascinating for me. That one minute it can be incredibly calm and then it can be turbulent or it can be murky or clear and it has this amazing weight but it doesn't seem like it should weigh a lot and it has this amazing light, this sort of thick light and it has this kind of mysterious sensual quality that I think you don't get out of trees trees. <laughs> Or mountains.
0: It's very tactile, isn't it? Yeah, it's Water.
1: amazing. Everybody wants to be in an immersive environment, but that's, for me, that's it. You know, that's it doesn't get more immersive. Yeah.
0: And if you were to just sort of look back, although I'm sure it's like asking someone who their favorite child is, but is there, outside of Tusculum, is there any project that you're particularly
1: fond of? You always look back. And see the, the mistakes, really, and the weaknesses. But I, as I said, I think it was the the Holman House that really allowed us to, to make it a leap. Mm. Because actually, that's in a sense, architecture is, you're always taking this leap. You know, just like sometimes you're standing on top of this cliff with a few people and there's this huge river below you and you just say let's just jump in and see what happens and and I think Holman made us not scared of that Mm -hmm. moment of taking a chance because somehow or other we came through it yes you know we survived that and I think that's confidence in otherwise architecture is just this one It's like being a yak, you know, one foot in front of the other and then another step and then slowly steady. But I think the interesting moments in architecture are these incredible breaks or leaps or fractures with what you normally do, what other people do.
0: And then just coming back from – you've always been very encouraging of me as to what architecture I should look at and admire, particularly when it comes to, to bricks or roof tiles mm-hmm. even. The, the architecture study happened in a, as a little bit of an accident. Mm-hmm. When did you start finding inspiration from other architects?
1: As I said, at university, that's all we had. That's we all just, you had. I right. had to be – and actually I've been quite open about that and – I've always thought it was an important way to that you stood on the shoulders of those people. Mm. You didn't copy, you know, I think copying obviously isn't that interesting. But I still look at Corb now and I think, I just don't get it. You know, like, how does he do that? You know, how does he move you in a way that's sort of so, it's kind of uncontrollable? You know, it's this, it's almost ecstatic. Mm. And I think the same with Khan and, and, to a certain degree, miss, but there's this capacity to it's like this transcendent sort of feeling that you always want to sort of like, how do they? What you
0: know. do you? I always sort of wonder whether they intended us to feel all these things, you know, or not, or whether they I just create. Paul was it. very
1: clear about that. You know, he had this very beautiful passage about architecture almost being like a telephone service. He said, you know, you should be grateful that it does what it's supposed to do, that there's this. <laughs> <laughs> that it keeps the rain out and, you know, you can stand up and it doesn't fall over. And, and he said, it's like the telephone, so, you know, it's a very, it's a good thing. He says, but when architecture kind of moves you, mm. that's what he was always looking for, I think. Mm. There was this enchantment, It's you know, it sounds a bit sort of flaky and hokey, but... This sort of incredible, it's almost like this religious feeling, I think. I I agree, I think
0: enchantment's a beautiful way to describe it. I I remember that biennale with Zumthor. I was just enchanted Mm. and then I obviously nearly went berserk when I saw him (laughs) in in real life. Just how you were talking about doing things differently and one of the – first entries into the Think Brick Awards was the garden house and you'd come up with the idea then that the bricks should actually be kind of knocked out of place. How do those type of things come up? Is it just looking at that modular material saying, how could I do this differently?
1: You know, I think we'd always, in South Africa there was this incredible crude way of building and so things were built with this amazing energy and carefree quality. Because labor was unskilled, but incredibly cheap unfortunately. And people were building this kind of really crazy stuff out of concrete and brick, like really out there because they could. And I think we'd always been interested in that rough and smooth combination like how do you how do you get that primitive archaic sense to the work, which, I find incredibly attractive, that it's almost the primitive n- nature of these things, the sort of unsophisticated. And then how do you combine that with this incredible refinement? There's very That friction I find really interesting. And so with the bricks we realised there was that chance, because of the scale of the brick, mm-hmm. that you could actually have this kind of crazy, rough, primitive, archaic kind of messy thing sitting above this quite pure steel and concrete, and that it had the capacity to be almost the crudeness of it is kind of beautiful. Mm. And I think there's this, uh, it's not a new idea, but this sort of this beautiful, ugly quality in things and in people. And you're not sure, is it ugly? Is it beautiful? I think your brain's sort of trying to figure out, and I think that's an incredibly pleasurable thing. Mm. Your brain's thinking, I don't know where to settle. Keeps you animated and, and alive to it. And I remember saying to the bricklayers, "Just make it kind of messy. Do your worst brickwork." <laughs> and they just couldn't. You know, they oh. just said, "No, we just not. We don't know how to do that." You yep. know. And so we actually did a drawing, saying, "This is how you make it look messy." You know, you angle this and then you knock that one in. And, but it was all drawn up. Yes. Know, it was, wasn't left to chance. It was a really funny thing that they just couldn't do it badly because it was almost offensive to them. No, we, we're sort of bricklayers, you know. Yes. We know how to build brickwork.
0: Well, Their training had sort of made it if yeah. to do That's it right. that way. And I just wanted to discuss Phoenix Gallery yes. a little bit and obviously that was a beautiful collaboration with mm. John Wardle Architects. How did that all come about? It was one of
1: those things where we sort of did a house for Nikki in Tamaran which, which we used the similar brick mm. and and we got more into this sort of roughness. and Kai Lu had been called in to to do some of the furniture, and it didn't work out then. but then years later, Kai phoned and said, "Would you guys be interested in doing something with Wardle, a sort of a theater and a gallery?" And it was you know, it was one of those phone calls you thought, yeah, right. Sure, Kai, that sounds good. <laughs> Anytime. Whenever you want us to start. And I remember saying to Camilla, I just had the weirdest conversation. You won't believe. Somebody wants us to do a sort of a theatre with Wardle. And you know, it was, oh yeah, okay. And then it happened. You know, It was as simple as that. It was a straight commission. There was no competition. There was no interview process. There was no put in a fee and we'll see what it's like. There was no expression of interest. You know, it was kind of, if you'd imagined back when you'd read the Rolling Stone article, this was going to happen, you would have thought, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> you know?
0: but, was, but you obviously discussed it with John, or you wanted to work together.
1: John and I had been old friends for a long yes, time. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, no, we never sort of, Kai put us together. You know, he wow. just said, I think the two of you would be good working together. And which turned out to be true. Because yes. we'd never really we'd done a couple of competitions, but they'd never gone anywhere, John and I. Mm. And yeah, it was a fantastic. I think in a in a way it's because we it was separate but equal. Okay. And I think that was – because obviously we've been in collaborations before mm. where they weren't separate and equal they yes. were separate and unequal.
0: And then, uh, look, we know from that project, John's been very passionate about Krauss bricks, mm. but obviously the material had to be chosen. Can you talk us through a little bit of that process?
1: In a way, John's more interested in the, the story about the making of it than, than we are. For us, it was just, oh, so we can do a couple of samples and and, and I remember at some stage we wanted to make it greeny, gray, and shiny. And, and then they said, no, can't do that. And we said, okay. But we did like the gray and we did like the sort of roughness of it. And the only thing we were really interested in was, I don't know if you know Leverence's building, mm. the church, where he sort of got this really thick mortar and really thin bricks. Mm. And, you know, the sort of kind of crazy roughness of that. Was always quite overwhelming, you know. Like, how did how did they do that? And we wanted to do that, but the they said it was just impossible to get that here for some reason. I don't know. It was going to crack or break or something. But so we were more interested in the the render being huge, yes, and then the bricks being sort of just this beautiful greeny grey, right? And actually, using cross now in. in in a project we're doing up in Byron similar thing because it's got the ability to be the sort of variegated slightly rough imprecise
0: i'm just wondering whether you remember when we first i think I first met you in that about face competition mm. where you said you wanted the, the brick wanted to be a circle or curved mm. and then you went on to do the garden house and, and then very early on, you had some key ideas about how these awards would be different. Do you remember what you told me back then?
1: I seem to remember that there were, in Australia, there's so many awards, and it's like everybody was getting an award for like any. And I think I remember saying to you, we should just minimise it and make it really significant. Because things lose their significance when everything's significant. I think we said, why don't we just minimise it to five really amazing prizes, and and make it hard to get those prizes, you know, that you really had to deserve them, rather than everybody getting a pat on the back. This was like an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> you were very supportive of that. Mm. It's gone on to become, as you know, in Australia, one of the most sought-after awards, not only because of the financial benefits, which are enormous and unbelievably generous, and kind of, it staggers me that nobody else is really doing this in Australia, because it can support like a small practice for a long time. So small practices can take a chance and think, well, we can live off this for quite a while. And I mean, I don't know if I'm sort of delusional, but I think when we started, Brick was seen as quite a mundane, worker-like sort of material. And I don't know whether we were just lucky to be part of this movement, but Brick Now is just sort of it's just this incredibly this freedom and this incredible capacity to experiment. And and also to look back at Eliada D'Este, I remember talking to you about it. But you never really understood how amazing that work was until we saw it through the Think Brick Awards and you started to think, wow, there were people doing these amazing things and they weren't celebrated, mm-hmm. really. But now I think bricks are sort of, maybe because it's also got this politically and it's got an incredibly easy relationship with the world. Sometimes you just look around and think, oh, yeah, everybody's doing brick now. <laughs> Whereas when I was, you know, when we were young, everybody was doing timber battens and you thought, oh, yeah, everybody's doing <laughs> timber battens. But actually you could never do anything much with timber battens because they were always just timber battens. But bricks has this amazing array this infinite array of possibilities that I think your wards have provoked, actually. You know, I think people think, wow, so that's what we can do now.
0: Mm. And I'm always constantly surprised, mm. even with your project. I sort of, I think I get to this point where I think, oh, okay, that's that's where we've got to with Brick. Mm. And then every year something comes. Something new, And, and you bigger. just think,
1: you know, of course you get jealous of some of those projects and think, which I thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> you never admit it to them. You, you wouldn't tell them. You wouldn't phone them and say, gee, I was really jealous of your projects.
0: I'd I'd like to ask this in a brick framework, but where do you think it's going? Do you still think there is unlimited possibilities there? I think
1: it's like any amazing material. You don't know what the limits are, really. I think you always... You're just rolling with it. I think that was really surprising in the years that we've worked together, that you started off thinking, oh, that's just brick. You know, you could change the colour. Mm. You know, that was kind of the most exciting thing. Wow. That's so right. you
0: could use… The glazed brick. You could do a <laughs> yeah, pattern. That's right. Yeah.
1: And then it just kind of exploded. You know what I mean? It's mm. sort of… And they kind of ricochet. So everybody's sort of looking and and working with what other people are doing. So
0: I remember one time you rang me and you said, there's there's these bricks from Peterson Bricks and they're really thin. You have got to get them here. Yes. And I think, you know, that was about, oh, it was early on. It was maybe about seven years ago. And they've become so popular Mm. as well. And so it's just sort of interesting how we've, Looked at that, and then looked at even our manufacturers now manufacturing bricks that look recycled brick mm, because it's exactly. been such a
1: such. No, I think we, you know, we sometimes go to the talks at the showroom, and mm. you look at the samples now compared to what you were seeing, as you say, seven years ago, and it's kind of staggering. Mm. You know? As you say, sometimes it looks like they've just come out of some weird sort of nuclear testing facility or something. You know, they're so black and glazed and distorted. And you think, now where can I use those?
0: <laughs> Neil, where do you think architecture, like with all of the, I guess, constraints from an environmental perspective, what role do you think architecture has to play in
1: that? Architecture is such a huge field, I mean, th- this year's Pritzker Prize winners were very extraordinary in their political ambitions and their architectural ambitions. But I think if I had to be brutally frank, I think our our interest is towards the very small painterly end of architecture. I don't know where architecture is going. My sense is that people getting, you know, in a world that's drowning and there's no significance really. So how do you make significant work in a world that doesn't value significance isn't for us is a really important thing. And how do you make architecture that resonates or enchants people in a world that's almost become jaded with everything, is a really hard thing for us to think about at work every day. Because I think that's the, as I said, we're not, in, we're not solving problems at the immense problems of the world. We're sort of at this tiny little almost irrelevant end, I think. So.
0: Do you think architects should be in a bigger space, more relevant, have a, have a bigger say?
1: I think there are people like Lacaton like and Vassal doing this amazing work. And there's this huge middle ground of architecture that's speculative, and I think that's the most depressing for me. You know, that, that's just churning out m- millions of metres of cool stuff. Mm. I think politically, I've always I've been kind of fortunate in that my sister's has almost taken that role for me, so I feel sort of liberated from that (laughs) because I think at a league, lawyers and politicians and CEOs can make huge differences. Yes, much more than than architects signing because I think to be the sort of green mask of the establishment is a really sort of sad thing.
0: Neil, when you're on, you've been on plenty of juries, including, I think, ours two years in a row. What do you look for in projects when you're judging them?
1: It's almost an instinct, but I think you can look at projects and you can think, got it, got it, got it. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. And I think that's, but it's just this instinct, the, the search for quality sometimes can be overlooked in that situation because Mm. you you just don't want the vanilla anymore. Mm. You'd rather that they took a risk and failed Mm. than just tried this sort of… Adorno said this kind of interesting, he said, a lot of people think that modern architecture failed because it went out on a limb. And he said the real problem was that it didn't go out on a limb far enough. and. I always thought that was a really interesting, because, you know, he said that in the 60s or something, and I thought it was a really interesting take on uh, our society, you know.
0: If you hadn't have become an architect, what do you think you would have done?
1: I would have had to just been Bob Dylan. Okay.
0: Oh, okay, sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, that's been a pleasure. I'm going to leave it there on Bob Dylan. But before we completely finish, I'm going to ask you these rapid-fire questions. Mm-hmm. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Both. Handwriting or typing?
1: Handwriting.
0: For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? All. All. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Books. What is important to you, style or substance? Both, I think. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? TV. Antique or brand new? Both. Call or text? Call.
1: I'm from the analogue era.
0: (laughs) Travel back in time or into the future? Back. Exterior
1: or interior? Both.
0: Video games or board games? Neither. Form or function? Both. Complex or simple with relation to design? Both. Neil, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Liz. That was great.
0: If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.